Happy uh, May to everyone. I, I, I've mentioned a couple times, this is my third week teaching Sunday school, and um, the weather has been terrible. It's, it's been technically spring when I've taught, but it's felt like winter, so at least you've got warmth. If, if not, maybe we'll get some sun later today. Well, uh, we are, for those of you joining who are new, we are in week three of our study of bibliology. We're, we're doing a, what I'm calling a Theology 101 uh, going through a lot of uh, different aspects of theology. There's this term theology that's generally used to cover things related to God, and, and um, there's theology proper, which will be God himself uh, that we'll get into actually once we finish bibliology. So uh, just a little bit of foreshadowing of things to come. Um, last week, we, we were in our second week. The first week, we talked about the authority of Scripture, and last week we talked about, who can tell me, what aspect of bibliology did we talk about last week? Clarity, clarity thank you. Yeah, clarity of Scripture. So um, this week I'm going to be a little bit aggressive. I'm going to try to cover two aspects in this week for those of you who are following along in the Grudem book, which has been our guide through this study. Uh, You'll see this will be the end of bibliology, but I talked to Pastor a little bit this week, and I had this other aspect of bibliology that oftentimes gets thrown into the mix, but it wasn't in the Grudem book. And Pastor, when I was talking to him the other day, he said, well, what, what do you think about canonicity? And I said, oh, I'm glad you asked, because I've been trying to figure out, is there a way we can work this in, even though Grudem didn't work it in in his book. So the plan will be, if we can get through these two aspects today... We'll head toward canonicity uh, next week, which really is kind of an interesting and daunting topic because a lot of what we're doing right now, we can go right to the Word of God and say, this is, this is why we believe what we believe, but canonicity is a little bit different. Uh, and then after that, uh, we will head into who is God, so theology proper. And uh, Grant, consider this my request, but I, I'd like to take a vacation in two weeks, so if you don't mind covering for me in two weeks. I'm going to my <laughs> <laughs> You can't go. Well, there, there, there goes my trip, my one trip for the year, never mind. So, all right, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how we work that out. But um, Grant's going out west, and I'm actually planning on going that way as well. So uh, that's what's, what's ahead for us. All right, let's do a little bit of review here. Yeah, you've already answered, I think, the first question. Uh, what aspect of bibliology? So that was clarity we discussed last week. Uh, next question. Uh, what P word is a theological term that means clarity or brightness? Again, we're not going to be overloaded with, with theological terms, but uh, from time to time, I think it's kind of fun to pick up on some of these terms. Does anybody remember that word that starts with P? I think I heard it. It's tough. Perspicuity, thank you, Gordy, and welcome back again. Perspicuity, clarity or brightness. And don't we need that in these days, huh? Question number three, what key passage talks about the crucial work the Holy Spirit does within us to connect us to understanding and obeying God's word in a way that unbelievers cannot fathom? Do you remember what, what proof passage we used for that? You're in the right testament. 
Frank. Uh, boy, we, we, are, we love 2 Timothy 3 so much. We're going to see it again today, but um, I think I'll throw it up here. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about that. 1 Corinthians 2. So, yes. And then last but not least, true or false, it is primarily the church's job to connect children to God's word. True or false? False. The church plays a key role, no doubt. But we've seen from the Old Testament and the New Testament, parents are charged with the responsibility to teach their children God's word, to raise up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So parents, uh, it's our job to do that primarily, and we are certainly aided by the work of the local church. Okay, so uh, let's hop in. You all are not going to like having a teacher do this, are you? I mean, I, I'm going to be doing these reveal drills, and um, I, I've thought, I, I'm kind of a competitive person, too, so I thought maybe I'll just keep points on this side versus this side versus this side. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe that wouldn't go over too well. And people start switching sides. That would be kind of fun. Um, so we're going to talk about the necessity of Scripture today. It's necessary and it is sufficient. So those are going to be the two aspects we're going to review today. Um, and of course, as always, we will identify Scriptures that give us the basis for why we believe this. So first of all, we believe that Scripture is necessary for salvation. Uh, I want to just take you to Romans ten seventeen, And the Bible says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We see this echoed again here in 2 Timothy 3. Some of you mentioned 2 Timothy 3 a minute ago. That is such a key passage of Scripture for understanding the purpose and how Scripture came about. But I think the key verse tends to be 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But the previous verse actually says this. And how from childhood, and we did talk about that a little bit last week, where Timothy was raised by, it sounds like he got instruction from Lois and Eunice, mom and grandma, uh, but it says, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. And so I, I, I would say Second Timothy 3, it's a safe answer when asked about that, when talking about bibliology, uh, so keep it up, because we might even see it later again in this lesson. So my, my question for you as we think about your own life experience today, can you think back to the time when you were saved and what scripture was used to help you understand your need of the Savior and help you come to that point of salvation? Good. Jeremiah 33.3. Yeah, it's a, that is a, an oldie but a goodie. I mean, going back to the Old Testament, the promises of God there. Yeah, that's one of... I like that one. Growing up doing some of the scripture memory work, that was an easy one to memorize. So I, I remember that one. Who else? Who else remembers what scripture was used to bring them to salvation? Since God's word is clear, you need the word of God to be saved. Grant?
right. And, and I think that's why we love missions. Uh, we, we can partner in sending somebody to share the, the message. Amen. Who else? Any scripture uh, come back to mind? I'll, I'll share mine if some of you are still thinking about it. So when I was five years old, uh, some of you might know uh, Nancy Flink. Uh, her husband is a pastor. He was pastor in Fairmont, Minnesota, where I grew up. And at Vacation Bible School, toward the end of the week, I remember I recognized my need for a Savior. Uh, she took me aside. We went downstairs, and similar to what Grant said, we walked through several passages in Romans. Uh, Romans 3.23 was there. Romans 5.8 was there. Romans 6.23. And it was crystal clear to me, based upon what God's Word said, that I needed a Savior. And so I can testify, and others have already, that the Bible is essential uh, for coming to faith in Christ, right? Anybody else uh, testimony to share? Uh, precious scriptures that take you back to that point of salvation? We've got one point over here so far, one point here so far. <laughs> okay. Next. Scripture is necessary for knowing God's will. So I think some of you can identify with me when I say, you know, points in my life where I need to know what God's will is for me for this next step, right? It's some of these unknown things. But in this word, there is a lot that is clearly stated, what his given will is, right? So we can go to his word and identify within his word what his will is for our life. Uh, Roman, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So in the Old Testament, God had a set of laws uh, that the, the nation of Israel, they were to follow. That was very clearly his will. We get to the New Testament. Christ is here on this earth. He gives us more. He, he kind of opens up some of what is behind the law. He fulfills the law. And we get into the epistles. And the apostles help us unpack the life of Christ and what Christ had taught. And then how then that will govern our lives as believers. And that's, that's the specific will we can all access. We don't need any secret, um, you know, conversation with the Lord. This is all revealed in God's word. Now, it's interesting when we think about what this passage from Deuteronomy says, this idea of the secret things will. I'm just curious, what are some things that you would really like to know about, whether it be something in your life or something about God uh, that maybe has not been revealed? Is there, a, is there a topic that you've wondered about that would be put in the bucket of secret things will versus very clearly revealed will? This is a chance for this section to get on the, on the tally here, point tally. Yes, sir. Good. Exactly. Right, right. But we know when it's going to be 
Amen. Yeah, that's, that's one that's been on my mind. Like, it'd be nice to know that, wouldn't it? When, when, when does the Lord return? What else? Christine? Yeah, I think that would go into that bucket of the secret things. Um, oh, oh, for, yeah, so Christine said a lot of people wonder why bad things happen in life. We, we don't always have the answer. Though we, we are given all things work together for good, even, you know, Romans 8, even though that doesn't always, um, it's one of those promises we have to trust, trust in and rest in, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So the, the secret things will, uh, versus the clearly revealed will of God is, is this contrast in, in Scripture uh, noted here in Deuteronomy 29. It's also, the Word of God is also necessary for spiritual life and thriving. When, when Christ uh, was tempted by Satan in Matthew 4, uh, he responded and he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think we would all agree how important food is to our life. Uh, we need food, we need drink, we need these things to survive. But I wonder if we all would do what Jesus is saying here and recognize that for our spiritual life, God's word is vitally and equally as important. And I felt like this was a conversation Jesus had off and on throughout the New Testament. He, he was dealing with the people who were focused on the flesh, the here and now. And here Christ comes in to say, actually, this is not what really matters. It is the spirit that really matters. Your spiritual being, your spiritual life. You, you, you look at places like John 6. You know, Jesus spends a good portion of that text talking to the crowd saying, uh, I am the bread of life. And they had the hardest time understanding that. You go to the next chapter, and there's talk about Jesus being the living water. So it, it was a constant battle Jesus fought with those of us living in these earthen vessels that are so focused on the, the needs that we have physically. Uh, but I, I propose to you, and this was highlighted in our we need the word of God for spiritual life and thriving. If you, if you could, let's turn to Psalm 1. Let's see what the Old Testament says about this. I've tried, uh, I've tried to take a lot of the scripture and put it up on the screen for us, but um, some of these passages, let's, let's uh, open our, our word of God and, and see what the Bible says here. So this is the psalmist writing in Psalm chapter 1, a very familiar psalm. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So there's a lot of avoidance going on there up to this point. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So can you see the word picture here uh, in Psalm 1, where the psalmist is describing where is this person's love? Where is this person's desire? It's in the law of the Lord. It's in thus says the Lord. And what does that look like in the life? There is flourishing. There is life. Verse 3, this person is like a tree planted by the streams of water, and there is fruit, and the leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. So we are given a key to success here in Psalm 1 if we are looking for spiritual life and spiritual thriving, and that is found in delighting in God's word. Now, having said that, having stated some things the word of God is necessary for, for salvation, for knowing God's will, for spiritual life and thriving, careful to note here, notice that it's not necessary to recognize there is a God and a moral law. And if you were to go to Romans, early part of Romans, it's clear. So what does Romans have to say about this? Well, here's Paul, who's now addressing the Romans, and in what some call the, the key t- verse in that whole letter, Romans 1.16, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. You know, there's, it's a powerful verse for the gospel. He then starts talking about how wicked mankind is will become, and how the judgment of God will come upon them. But notice what he says in this this ongoing dialogue. Verses 19 and 20, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Again, he's not talking about believers here. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we're seeing from Romans 1, 19 and 20 that the unsaved can look around, and I'm going to point out that second part I highlighted, especially thanks to creation. They can look around and identify there is a greater power, and they, are, they should recognize they are accountable to that power. Who is that power? And that is why we need more information in the Word of God. But there is a general sense, a general revelation uh, that God has given uh, to all. In in chapter 2, verse 14, we, we see this language. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And if you recall last week, I believe it was last week, I was curious to see it from some of you who have been saved maybe later in life, if you could go back and kind of put yourself, all right, prior to salvation, the word of God made no sense. It wasn't clear. You come to that point of faith. The Holy Spirit comes into your life, and you're able to understand and identify that these words are true. And yet Romans 2.14 says people before Christ have this law, this moral law written on their hearts. Uh, and their conscience bears witness. And so, it, again, I shared my testimony a little earlier today. I was saved at such a young age, it's hard for me to go back and understand my, my mindset at the age of five. But perhaps some of you can identify this. Uh, that, that, yeah, I, even before I was saved, I, I had a general understanding there is a right and a wrong based upon how God has written these things into your hearts and minds. So, uh, interesting separation there. 
Okay, so I will, I will stop there for a second. I, I do want to, uh, before we go on to the sufficiency of Scripture, I do want to just share, maybe to help understand a little bit more, I don't have it up on the overhead, but a, a definition between special revelation and general revelation. So general revelation is what we just described, what has God shown specifically through creation. And by the way, Psalm 19, another great passage to look at, talking about that. Uh, but here's a general definition of general revelation versus special revelation. And I, I got this uh, from, from gotquestions.org. Uh, general revelation refers to the general truths that can be known about God through nature. Special revelation refers to the more specific truths that can be known about God through the supernatural. So if Romans, what we just looked at, described the general revelation, what are some examples of special revelation as you think back on how God has done that through the supernatural? What's it? Okay, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, yeah, absolutely. Holy Spirit, that, that, that was sent by God, helping us understand the Word of God. Good. Grant? You mentioned a couple of the, the key groups of people that, that God used, the prophets and the apostles, right? Any other examples of special where it's a supernatural revealing of God? Dan? Jeremiah 33.3. Right. Yeah. Exactly. How? Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think I saw another hand. Lowell, did, was your hand up?
Right, right. Well, it's interesting because I remember several years ago this whole argument between those who wanted to stick with evolution being taught in the public school system versus intelligent design. You know, not even not even calling it this is God, you know, the Lord of the universe, but intelligent design. And people are so hardened, and I think Romans 1 talks about this. Like Grant said, their consciences have been seared. God has given them over uh, to these depraved minds. There's no chance they're going to acknowledge God, even when they're looking around, even though the Word of God is clear. They do have it written in their hearts and in their minds. And so uh, it's a state of where we are as humanity, fallen, and it's not getting any better uh, as, you, as you look around. Grant? Yeah, right. And I'm, I'm reminded of the New Testament story. I, I think it's Acts 10. I might have the chapter wrong, but there was a guy named Cornelius uh, on a journey. And uh, all of a sudden, the Lord sends Philip his way, because he had been reading, I believe it was Isaiah, uh, one, of, one of those Old Testament books. And uh, so he's, he's, he's kind of connecting with it, but it isn't until the Lord sends Philip his way that he can really put, put two and two together, right? And so that, that, that's, that's exactly right. So the Holy Spirit may, may help, you know, working on the hearts of somebody. We talked last week about the clarity and the, importance, the important role that the Holy Spirit has. Um, but it really, is, it really is necessary to have the Word of God presented for salvation. Who, who is sharing that? And, and is the Holy Spirit working on that heart of that unbeliever? So, okay, let's see how we're doing for time. On to our second aspect. Uh, scripture is sufficient. And uh, kind of the underlying point here, God gave us everything he wants us to know, not everything we want to know. So going back to what I asked earlier, are there things you wish you knew that God didn't necessarily reveal in his word? I'm guessing most of us, even though we didn't mention it, would say, yes, there are things I would really like to know. Uh, but for whatever reason, God has shared what he shared and he is perfectly pleased to do so. And because he is perfectly pleased that we have, that he's given us his complete word, we too should be perfectly pleased with that, even if it doesn't answer all of our questions. Uh, and here we go back again to uh, one of our key passages, 2 Timothy 3, uh, focusing more on the second part of, of that passage, uh, where it says, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's, that's the whole point. Uh, you know, if, if God said, I want to let mankind in on all of my secrets and all of my plans, I'll do so. I suppose he could have done that. Uh, 
I still think there are great limitations in our understanding as finite beings trying to grasp all that. But we see here a purpose of what God has shared with us that he wants us to go out and do good works for him once we are saved. And that's what his word is all about. In Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2, and by the way, uh, I just shared something, and this is one of those uh, scenarios where I don't know if this happens to you or not, but sometimes it seems like the Lord will have you encounter one truth from Scripture at one point. Maybe a week later you'll hear that again, and then maybe two weeks later you'll hear that again. But this is one of those truths of Scripture that's been kind of pounded into me the last uh, month or two. And really it started, I think, with with Pastor uh, taking us through the book of James. And I even just made reference to it after we read from 2 Timothy 3. But look at this passage from Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2. So it says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add... There it is, Brother Howie. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord that I command you. So, I've highlighted some key words here, uh, several verbs, right? Listen. Pay attention. God is speaking. Our ears should be open, and we should be taking it in. And then not only that, but we should then be doing what we are hearing. And that's the point I was just telling you about this this message has been reinforced to me over and over recently. Christian life, it's not just about sitting and learning and becoming super knowledgeable. I mean, that, that's great. That's important. But we better be living out our faith, as we've heard from the book of James. And you even see some of that language here in Deuteronomy 4. Do. Why? That you may live and go in and take possessions. And then, oh, by the way, verse 2, because what I've given you is sufficient, don't add, don't take away. Have we seen some of that language in the New Testament at all? Where there's warning, don't, don't mess with what we've spoken, Jesus or God says. Do we see any of that in the New Testament, or is that just an Old Testament idea? Yes, Revelation, Lowell. Okay, right. And, and Revelation, and actually toward the end of the Bible, Revelation 22 uh, what, what's it say? Does anybody remember? It's, don't, don't add or subtract from the Word of God. Or, you remember what the consequence is? Name will be removed. And I think there's also language, if I'm remembering it correctly, about all the plagues will be added unto you as well. So it's, there's harsh language uh, if you're trying to tweak with what God has, has given to us, both in the Old and the New Testament. Okay, let's, uh, let's all turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Again, just talking about is what God has given us in his word enough? Is it sufficient uh, for our lives? <clears throat> I'd like to read the first eight verses here. And while you're turning there, I just want to read another definition. Another definition I got related to the sufficiency of Scripture off off of GotQuestions.org that I really liked. As we understand, as a believer, 
what it means for the Bible to be sufficient for us, the definition is this. The Bible is all we need to equip us for a life of faith and service. So there it is. Faith, service. It provides a clear demonstration of God's intention to restore the broken relationship between himself and humanity through his Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, through the gift of faith. No other writings are necessary for this good news to be understood, nor are any other writings required to equip us for a life of faith. I thought that was well, well said. Uh, 2 Peter 1, let's read the first eight verses together. <clears throat> Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> now let's just keep in mind, he's writing this is toward the end of his life. He's going to reference that later in this chapter. So any, anything he's saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to be, of course, very important to him, very important to the audience as well. So he says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All right, so there's that word knowledge. And how do we get a knowledge of him? It is through his word. He then goes on to say, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And where are those promises? In his word. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And here we go. This is what I've been really getting drilled into me lately. How are we supplementing our faith? With virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how there's this knowledge base we have access to, but it's sufficient if you go back to verse 3 because it says, He, through his power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So to me, 2 Peter 1.3 is one of those great uh, passages that talks about we have all that we need. We, we don't, to, to live the Christian life successfully, we don't need anything else on top of this book. Amen? So let's, let's rest in that and trust in that in the goodness of our Lord in providing his word to us. Okay, got just a few minutes left here, so we'll, we'll wrap it up. A couple of questions for, for you all to, to respond to, hopefully. Uh, does the Bible definitively answer every question we bring to it? Seeing, seeing a fair number of you do this, which I think is, is the right answer. This is the right answer. So, yep, okay. So, no, it does not. It does not answer every question we have. I would, you know, like our brother over here said, I'd like to know when the Lord will return. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're told that no man knows the day or the hour, but 
I certainly like trying to figure it out. You know, I, I'm, it's, it's interesting in the days we live in, um, you, you have to think this is soon, uh, but we, we don't know for sure. And why or why not does the Bible not, what would be a biblical answer or based upon principles we've seen in God's word, why does not God give us every answer we're looking for in his word? Uh, so he stated that uh, God designed our knowledge of his word to grow, and everything that's in God's word is what we need, not necessarily what we want. Uh, but it is a growing process, and we, we, I think last week made reference to that. There, there's an early stage of understanding with God's word called milk. I believe Peter calls it milk, but there's also a maturing into the post-milk stage of meat. And we grow in that. Grant. In that very topic, I, I struggle with that. And I believe God has answered every question. Hmm. It's just that man's questions can be faulty. I think, even as we, we talked about, okay, we, we can see the signs of a, a Jesus coming back. For us, I'm going to check the comments of the rapture. Um, and that's true. But don't you think since AI is about to destroy us all, he has to come back soon? <laughs> I don't know. All right. So how then should we think about issues that we are tempted to add to the Bible? So, um, you know, th there are different things. I think I grew up in a home where it was a pretty strict household. We had some pretty tight rules, and it's easy to say, okay, you can't do this or... You're, you're, you're not saved or you're a Christian, so you can't do that. Um, and so sometimes I think we want to add to the Bible in a sense, right? Make up rules. Uh, or as Grant just talked about the rapture, it might be easy for me to plug in a formula and say it makes a lot of sense for, for Christ's return on this date. But if it's not clearly mentioned in the Bible... How do we go about then, even if we are leaning towards thinking it? Because, you know, Romans 14.5 says we all should be persuaded in our own minds, right? So 
What, what's the key, key to this question? Trust in the Lord, right? And that should help us worry less, right? Yeah. Good. I think, I think Grudem actually answers this pretty well. Uh, toward the end, of you, if you read this, toward the end of the chapter, he says, one should therefore exhibit a, a humble hesitancy in placing more emphasis on these issues than the Bible does. So I think keeping in mind whether we are led to believe Christ is coming back here, whether we believe this activity is definitively wrong and Christians should not be participating in it, I think there needs to be a humble hesitancy uh, in, in how we go about it. You can discuss it with people, but if the Bible is not, um, shall we say, as some of the key topics were, we said it was crystal clear last week, if it's not on some of these issues, may we all be humble in these days. All right, any uh, final comments? Insights, questions uh, for this week as we wrap up. John? Coming soon. Okay, so you're in that camp. Right, good. Amen. Maranatha, right? Okay, Gordy. Well said. Uh, Lowell, did I see your hand up? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and we, the Lord will work in mysterious ways even in these times. Amen. Okay, well, uh, next week, uh, I've already given you a bit of a preview for week four. Uh, we will finish, I hope, finish up bibliology next week with a look at canonicity. And uh, then after that, we'll start in on who is God, theology proper. And that's if I can find a substitute teacher in two weeks once I get back from that, that trip. so All right, well, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time together. We thank you for your word. And we are um, acknowledging our, our condition as humans that, again, we don't understand everything in your word, uh, but we trust it and we understand what it is necessary for. And we thank you for the sufficiency. You have promised that your word will provide for our lives, and it will give us everything we need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And so we're thankful for that. We do pray that we would 
make your word uh, as important to our lives as the food that we eat uh, to sustain our physical lives. Uh, we pray that we would follow the example of our Savior as, as he talked about this in Matthew 4, that we would be like that tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth fruit in its season. Uh, so may we be investigators and lovers and followers of your word in these days, which seem to be getting darker by the day. Uh, we pray now for the service ahead. Uh, we pray for Pastor as he brings the message. We pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And uh, we thank you again for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.